My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is, is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The Alien. The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The Underground. The Decision. The Slow Departure. The Sound Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Mutation. The Separation. The Deception. The Suspicious. The Unexpected. Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Answer. The Beginning. Predator. All right. What's this week's book? This week on Animorphology, The Predator. The Predator. Yep. So, Ted, what happened in this book? So, in this book, uh, Marco's sad because the anniversary of his mom's death is coming up, um, and he and his dad have been really struggling with that over the past two years, so he's thinking that this is probably going to be his last mission. So, the mission is uh, Axe, their new Andalite friend, wants to create a Yurk distress beacon so he can steal a bug fighter and fly home. And... He thinks that he can build one, even using components that he can sort of find around. So the first step in the plan is that they're going to go to Radio Shack at the mall. So Axe uses his human morph, which is an amalgamation of the DNA of all of the human animorphs. Um, And he encounters mall food for the first time, and it, it drives him totally crazy. So they get the stuff they need from Radio Shack, but in order to escape the mall cops, they have to turn into lobsters, which is pretty terrible. Uh, The second step of the plan is they have everything that they need except for a Z-space transponder, which is a real thing that exists and helps you communicate. Uh, So in order to get that, they figure that there must be one in Chapman's basement because they saw that holographic projector there back in book two. So they turn into ants to infiltrate the basement, and that's okay because the Z-space transponder is really small. But turns out being an ant is really the worst thing that's ever happened to them and then they get attacked by another colony of ants and almost like torn to pieces and they barely survive so marco's like i'm definitely out after this one uh, but when they go to capture the bug fighter it turns out that the distress beacon they've created is on an old frequency so the yurks know it's a trap and capture the anamorphs and take them out into outer space to the yurk mothership and viscer 3 is like this is a huge victory for me i'm going to be the best yurk of all time but Visser 1 is also visiting Earth at this point, and Visser 1 sabotages Visser 3 and lets the Animorphs escape and go back to Earth. And it turns out there's a twist. Visser 1 is also Marco's mom. Marco's mom isn't dead. She's actually the controller that is leading all of the Yurks, the most important Yurk of all. So he decides he's actually going to keep fighting. This was my least favorite so far. Really? By far. Ooh, go on. Wow. Okay. I, I did not enjoy this book. And I feel that that is probably telling more about my personality than about the book itself, but I did not enjoy it. I'm very mad about the plot twist, which I know we will talk about. Mm. I'm actively angry about it. The title is very dumb. <laughs> the title, like, what is the predator? Is it the it's, lobster? It's the Yurk Mothership. It's the Yurk there's Mothership. One, oh, yeah. There's one line. Okay. All right. it's, a, it's just silly. It's, it's very dumb. And the stakes did not seem as high as they normally do which is partially because the other books had really high stakes, and this one, mm-hmm. eh, not so much. The Morphs were all terrible. This was the first book where I was like, I hate every single one of these descriptions, every mm-hmm. one of them. I'm with Ted on this, for this book in particular, they were all awful. And Marco annoyed me. He just really did. Really? And, and I, Ooh, even okay. though we got so much more of his like, backstory and him as a human being, he just annoyed the crap out of me. And I just, I didn't buy this book. I don't like it. That's so interesting. I, so I think Marco is never my favorite character. I read this one pretty late, actually. I read this about 10 books in. I was consulting my list. And I think he was always kind of at the bottom of the pile of the Animorphs for me. I never really had a clear, like, favorite. But this time reading it, I was like, I think if I read these now, I would like Marco more than I did back then. I just really like his sense of humor, which is probably just a difference between our taste in book narrators. Right. Like, there were so many parts of this book that I laughed at. There were also many horrifying things, which I remembered being horrifying and are clearly intended to be horrifying and, you know, maybe bothered me less than they did you. I don't know. Or maybe mm-hmm. I just, because I appreciated his voice as a whole, I appreciated the contrast between the humor and the horrifyingness. I don't know. It is very funny. Marco's a very funny narrator. <laughs> his internal voice is so similar to his external voice, and I appreciated that. He's He's a very funny person. They do a pretty good job, like, varying the tone of the narrative voices. Yeah. At least for yeah. Marco. Maybe not as much for some of the others. I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember Marco being one of my favorite Animorphs either, but 
my reaction to this book this time around was it really it got to me in a good way like there were a lot of things that I found very touching and while I find the morphing generally horrifying I really (laughs) like where it goes in this book it's not pleasant to read or to think about but it kind of needed to go there Right. Mm, yeah. Marco is the most, in some sense, he's the most mature anamorph at this point. Mm-hmm. And what so, a weird idea. Like, there's some ways in which he's really not mature at all. But, I mean, of course, he's 13. That's going to be true. Right. But, yeah, but in terms, in of, terms of the way he, yeah. the way he thinks about it and the way that he's already making kind of grown-up decisions in his life, it's really interesting to read. Yeah. So I don't think this was my favorite book so far. But there were a lot of, like, little moments in the kind of horror and tragedy of it all that yeah, made yeah. me... I liked it feel a things. lot more than four. I think The Encounter has been my favorite so far. Do we want to talk about the twist? All right. Now we've had each of the the starting Animorphs narrate a book once, mm-hmm. and I feel like the Visser 1 twist is one of the final pieces of the premise that clicks into place. Okay, yeah. Um, there may be a couple more things still to come, but it, like I feel like now we've established the central dynamics of why they're all doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, they've all had yes. their elucidation moments. Right. And decided to so again, yeah. I think I said this about the last book too. The Marco's mom is Visser One mm-hmm. thing is just baked into the Animorphs for me. Okay. It's something yeah, that me too. I, you know. Yeah. Okay. It's hard for me to even imagine being surprised by it. That so makes sense. I want to. I want to get your take as you know, coming to it for the first time. So I have. <laughs> well, at page sixty-eight, so about halfway through the book. I have a note to myself that says, I swear to God, if Marco's mom turns up, I will be so disappointed. <laughs> because it's so heavily foreshadowed yeah, in, in it's the true. book throughout. There was no body, and why would she take the boat out, and all of these things. And I was like, she's going to come back, yeah. and I'm, I'm going to be very disappointed when she does. And I liked the way that they, you know, Visser 1 as a kind of, this person is coming in and is going to... This or three is going to be in trouble because they haven't been doing this properly. All of that build up into the reveal. That was all great. Like it was all very interesting. Like, oh no, who's this person going to be? And then it was Marco's mom. And I was like, Come on. <laughs> so even though it was but, totally foreshadowed, it was at least a surprise. I was. In it the was moment. still a surprise. Yeah. And I, but I was still like, are you kidding me? I'm interested. Like, what is it that? Because like, I feel like if it had just been like, oh, his mom comes back, it's like, ugh, you like, killed her off and then brought her back. That's cheap. But like, this is so much worse. It's so much worse. But like, so what is it that It's so much you? worse, and I think that that's important and, and is better than if they had just been like, oh, actually, she just ran off because she hated us. That mm-hmm. would have been worse. This is better. But I, I still found it a little cheap mm-hmm. that his tragic backstory is kind of half his personality mm. at this point. And... That's not really fair. He has a lot of other things in his life. But in terms of what makes him not just a 13-year-old sexist punk, (laughs) this aspect of his life where his mother has died and he is dealing with that tragedy is an important part of who Marco has been in my head. And to have that be suddenly... It's still that he's dealt with his mother leaving, and that's still going to be important, I'm sure, for him. But all of a sudden, now it's like, and also aliens. It's like, but it's okay to have a character whose tragic backstory is not suddenly explained neatly by the presence of aliens in this world. (laughs) And that disappointed me. And I think part of it is that you're saying that Marco is one of the more mature Animorphs. But one of the things that has brought him to that place is having his mother die and having to deal with that and having to have the trauma and the emotional growth that comes from an early tragedy and having to help his father. And now all of that is cheapened by having her instead have become an alien or being taken over by Yerk. It felt like it was cheating. And and it felt like it was cheating in order to give Marco this elucidation event. Mm -hmm. But I don't buy it. I don't buy it as an elucidation event because I see that he's like, okay, now I have to save my mom, fine. But the reason he was calling quits to the mission was because of his father. Oh, great point. And to have that emotional connection with his father, which is so sweet, and especially that last moment where they're in the cemetery, and it's this really adorable, like his father is now kind of coming to terms with things and and moving on to the next stage of grief. Right, and not because of a convenient plot device or anything. (laughs) He's just... Because time managed to do that. And he's managed to do that, and... Marco is protecting his father and 
is developing that relationship with his father. And I don't buy that he's suddenly going to be like, well, I mean, I still have to save my mom. So it's fine if my dad is traumatized by my seeming death as well. I'm sure that more of this will be built out in later books and we will have more of it. But just as a like climactic plot twisty event, I was disgusted. I certainly don't think it's as straightforward as the image that you just painted where like, oh, my mom's an alien. Okay, I'm fine with this fight. Mm. But like knowing that he, knowing that his mom is an alien, I can't imagine him being okay just letting that go. Being like, okay, well, I decided she was dead, so I'm going to pretend she's dead. I'm going to live my normal life so I can be there for my dad mm-hmm. and not try to address these aliens that are now personally connected. I still don't think it's going to be an easy thing for him. Mm-hmm. But none of the moments like that have been super easy. Like, we've seen them all commit and then struggle to commit again. And this tips the scales for Marco, but not, I think, in a clean way. Yeah, I guess he didn't have a chance to commit again. Yeah, I think you're highlighting something important, which is that Marco will develop as a character because of the end of this book. He should be different Mm -hmm. from here on out in a way that, you know, obviously we don't know yet how things are going to change. And this is maybe the first... The first thing, except maybe Tobias getting trapped as a bird, but that's kind of part of the premise. Mm -hmm. This is the first thing that we see where it really is going to change one of the characters that already we're kind of getting to know. But I think that Marco's journey in this book is really interesting. And one of the things that he keeps, he keeps going back and forth between his sort of cynicism about the way the world works or, or maybe a more realistic way about the world works like sometimes bad things happen and there's there's nothing you can do about it but even before he finds out his mom is still alive he still says well as long as we're alive there's still some hope here mm-hmm. and so I think mm-hmm. he's not going to suddenly turn on a dime and be a different person from who he was he's gone from being really traumatized by the fact that his mom is dead and then there's no hope there mm-hmm. to well, actually, my mom's still alive, and that's that's now even based on his his philosophy in general. That actually changes things in a meaningful way. Like maybe there's no, she's alive and out in space somewhere, right? She's not like close at hand, but that does seem to be something that he already cared about. That's a good point. I mean, and and it's a good parallel too that his attitude towards their predicament does parallel his attitude towards his mother in this way. She's alive, there's hope. I like that. And it adds a new layer to his trauma. Like you were saying, the tragic backstory is cheapened by this. And in a way it is, but in a way it's, how long was she an alien before she left? Oh, how that's long the, has my mom, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. it's just so bad. So I think it's, it hasn't been taken away. He still lived through that. Like you said, his dad still doesn't have his mom. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting at the end how they're in the graveyard and they switch places really like Marco's the one this whole time has been like you should just accept it she's gone she's not coming back we need to move on with our lives and his dad's been mired in this grief and now his dad's like okay I'm gonna accept it we'll move on with our lives and Marco's like I just found out she's alive I have to get her back I have to continue this fight yeah that's a good point it's really tough that he can never be in the same place as his dad with that, since it seems like there's been this distance between them the whole time. Right. That's a good point. And it is a motivating factor, and I, I kind of see that as a growth opportunity, it's going to be important. And I like the idea that for the other characters, they've had to recommit, and we only really get Marco doing it kind of once, mm-hmm. really, at the end. So I look forward to the next Marco book, I guess. <laughs> right. Going back to what you said about he could just have a tragic backstory that's not related to the aliens. Like, that's certainly true. But it's not really how these books have been operating so far. Like, these books are incredibly efficient. Like, as you observe, Gray, they're very short. And almost everything we've seen in these characters' lives has connected somehow to the war against the Yerks. Like, it's not... There's some universes where there's just sort of more there. Like, in Harry Potter, like some details end up being significant, but there's a lot of detail that's just there for color. And this is not one of those series where, like, Rachel's into gymnastics and her friend who she does gymnastics with, her dad is a controller. Mm -hmm. Like, Jake really wants to make the basketball team because his brother was on it. Oh, and his brother's quit because his brother's a controller. Like, all of this stuff ends up tying in. I mean, I guess for the tragic backstory that doesn't tie in so far, we have Tobias, whose lack of familiar relationships. Yeah, although it has been very convenient for... 
Yes. <laughs> right. And, you know, Axe, the Andalite, is Elfangor's brother, and he's also a teen, right? Yeah. It's a lot of... <laughs> There's a lot of coincidence, and it's sort of necessary if you're going to make the books this tight. Right. And it's a good point, too, that I am expecting a little much from a middle grade science fiction series to yeah. require a, a backstory. To it's, also, it's also funny because there are things in the books that I anticipate being disappointed by for the scene, <laughs> the thing that you just said. So it's funny that just some things probably, yeah, some things will affect us differently. <laughs> I'm super excited to find out the next thing that's going to make me have all caps notes Yay. Um, about the book. Do you want to talk about, now that we've seen all of the human animorphs have a book, kind of the sequencing of it. Oh, yeah. So the thing that made me think of it is you were saying Marco didn't have to recommit. He was sort of committing for the first time. I think the way they were sequenced, in addition to kind of the boy-girl thing, is from most gung-ho to most reluctant. Ooh. Uh, After Jake sets it up, I feel like you get the characters kind of in the order of how sort of easy it is for them to be all in. That's interesting to put Tobias in that spectrum because he is all in from the beginning, but he has a much bigger buy-in in that he needs to accept being a bird. Right. And I think it's more in terms of their personality and not yeah. their circumstances. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Rachel is certainly the let's go, let's do it person, and we get her book first after the opening. Marco is certainly the most reluctant, and I think it makes a lot of sense to save his book for last. I'm not sure I would totally order Cassie and Tobias that way. Like... Tobias than Cassie, but I did think we needed to deal with the bird thing. You know, couldn't delay that too much. And there's a little bit of, like, if Marco's motivation is kind of similar to Jake's, saving someone in their family, spacing Mm -hmm. them out, having to establish, like, the Rachel and Tobias relationship kind of in books next to each other. That makes sense. I'm interested to see what happens in the next Jake book, because I think to some extent in the first one, we don't actually get a lot of Jake. There's so many other right. things going right. on that there isn't the same amount of introspection that we get from the other characters. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested to see how how Jake actually does fit into that spectrum. right? I think Rachel through Marco, I can see that, but I actually don't know where Jake fits because we haven't gotten enough of his internal thoughts about it. It's been right. and it's been leader. Leader. yeah, Right, and they were doing everything for the first time in the first right. book, and now they have this established pattern and... I think Jake's personality is actually pretty well established by this point mm-hmm. in terms of how the other characters see him. His personality, but maybe not his motivation exactly. for fighting. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited for more of that. Can I just say, we finally got clarity on the question of whether Jake is a large person or not. Because it, <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that he seems bigger than he actually is because of his personality. I love it. <laughs> One of the other things that I think it's good to have Marco at the end for is actually something we've talked about a bunch, which is the relationships between these characters. Because mm-hmm. Margo, to some extent, is the loner of the group. Yeah. In a really interesting way. I mean, he's best friends with Jake, and we do get more of that in this book, of the two of them hanging out one-on-one. But other than that, he's jealous of Cassie and Jake. And yeah. he feels There's really so lonely. much of them in this book. And I think even Rachel and Tobias, he senses that he's not part of their connection Mm -hmm. and so getting his narrative at the end when you've already established those other relationships emphasizes that loneliness I think in a really interesting way and he doesn't have a canonical romantic partner I was wondering I mean maybe there's potential with him and Axe I was gonna uh, yeah that's that's what I'm shipping at the moment I think they had a couple of they had a couple of moments very sweet moments yeah Marco knows how to use a computer Axe was very impressed at the end when he decides that he kind of likes Axe when Axe is gung-ho about <laughs> yeah. murdering aliens. You guys are right. Axe is a human. Very funny. Yeah. Oh, my Quite God. I liked that. Right. I have to say, I mean, I love the Axe is a human scenes, but reading it this time, I was like, is this boy an idiot? Like, what? <laughs> like yeah, he's a kid, but, like, he's being trained as a warrior. He was on this battleship, like... He doesn't know better than to like to run off in the middle of a mission and go eat all the food in the cafeteria. Is it just though that human instincts uh, yeah. are really mm. dumb? <laughs> oh, I like that. That's a great theory. That's a good point. Yeah, he as an Andalite, he would never do that, but he's overwhelmed by the impulsiveness of and the human brain. I kind of get the impression that he doesn't have a lot of experience morphing, despite having oh, the yeah, ability. No. Right? No. The Animorphs want him to be an Andalite because Andalites are tough and, and good at fighting, right? Mm-hmm. He's like very dangerous in sure. his yeah, yeah. actual body. 
but I feel like he generally doesn't. Well, again, they're fighting this battle in space. Is morphing a thing that they've had to do a lot? Maybe not. Especially him. He hasn't. He's not a full warrior yet. Right. I, I get the impression that he's like the little kid that they had to invite on the mission, but no one was super <laughs> excited to have him there because maybe he's not that useful. And so, yeah. you know, he's being put in this place of having to represent that whole species, but actually it was like they didn't want him. Right. But he's really immature. He has so he has his little wise Andalite sayings, mm-hmm. but then like Marco immediately calls his bluff and is like, so, excuse me, how many times have you fought the Hork-Bajir? And Axe is like, oh man, like, <laughs> you got me. Or, and he's mm-hmm. like, the greater the danger, the greater the honor. And it's just this very like naive, like he's never seen a real battle, he has all this ideology about it. But and he is quick to accept when they're like, um, we're the only people fighting on this planet. If we do something stupid and die, the Yerks take over. And he's like, oh, yeah. Good That's point. true. And mm-hmm. Jake did say it, though. And I think he accepts that whatever Jake says goes. Well, That's he's a true. prince. <laughs> he really has a lot of respect for authority. <laughs> he also has that moment, which despite his alienness, I thought was very human when he asks if humans also fear death. Oh, yeah. When they all think they're about to die. He actually seems a, a loner for obvious reasons in a yeah. similar way. So I thought that oh, yeah. was a nice... He's the only one of his that species. That was a, a nice mm-hmm. moment for them. Except Visor 3. It doesn't really count. The way that Marco responds to that, too, it's like, we're not crazy about it. That's a great way to phrase it. Mm-hmm. And, and it was a very sweet thing that Axe, despite his inability to kind of pick up on a lot of these things just repeated that back like yeah we're also not crazy about it right very nice yeah the language thing is interesting i think we might find out some more later but he doesn't seem to have any problems with with like english but he also isn't very idiomatic in it Mm. yes his literal mindedness is such a joy (laughs) i'm excited to see more of that i like how much he loved coffee and how like Hey, Applegate, clearly a coffee drinker. I yeah. very much like that, too. I also really loved his Cinnabon yeah. obsession. <laughs> yeah. He's like, it was this thing. Just before they changed the recipe. Oh, well, no wonder. He was very excited about the Cinnabon. Mm-hmm. So funny. He's searching for the one smell in the mall, right? It's not just that he <laughs> loves Cinnabon. Thing. It's that he's just like from... You know, hundreds of feet away, he's like, there's something out there that I have to have. <laughs> what that thing. His, his food soulmate is the Cinnabon. It was so funny. Although that whole scene was so full of Frem Shaman. I was just like, oh, no, don't do it. It's what? Frem Shaman? Oh, uh, yes. Okay. Shame on behalf of, yes. of, of a friend. And I was just like, oh, oh, no, no, don't. Oh, no, Axe, don't do it. Not the food court. <laughs> <laughs> just imagine. Someone else's pizza that he throws away. Yes. Right. Well, yeah, they tell him, you can just throw it away, and he knows what throw means, so he starts doing it. I have to say, one of my favorite like interaction with Axe moments was when Marco says, Joe Andalite, you've won the Super Bowl, now where are you going? I said, mimicking the Disney World commercials, I'm going to Earth to turn into a lobster. I don't understand, Axe. <laughs> well, at least he's honest, you know. <laughs> Yeah, there's sort of definitely some classic, like, alien who understands our language but, like, doesn't get the nuance thing going on. Right. Which is really fun to play and, with. And, you know, he, he's never experienced a sense of taste before, right? Marco yeah. mentions that they don't even know how Axe eats. Mm-hmm. The sense of taste is such a great way to make the alien creature seem even more strange. Mm. Because you can get this description of their physical body and, okay, sure, they look completely different from us. But the idea that there could be a species that doesn't have a sense of taste... Such a great way to, to draw that distinction. Right. And it reminds you that humans are just another kind of weird animal. Yeah. <laughs> we put things into our faces. And then we enjoy the flavor sometimes. I think, Ted, you found something somewhere where the authors were talking about how they created Andalites to be as different as possible from humans. I don't remember. That's <laughs> quite that's quite possible. Okay. I was just going to say it's interesting the ways in which they are very different, like the sense of taste, and then the ways in which, like, with the gender or with the fact that they have a head where we'd expect a head and, like, a torso and arms, even if they're, like, tiny arms and the head's a little different. Like, I don't know. I feel like they could have been more different. They could have been taxons. And there are, right, <laughs> yeah. the taxons are the weird aliens that we've seen so far. And there are more aliens introduced into the canonical Animorphs universe in this books, and we don't get any descriptions of them. Marco's like, mm. there were other aliens, things that I'd never seen before. Yes. And then he I just moves on. Not there enough time. Nothing I to could add them. to my list because they didn't Aww. have names. 
since we're talking about it, there were a lot of interesting kind of alien technology things going on here. Mm-hmm. There's the drop shaft that they mm-hmm. use in the mothership, which was we've Psychic talked elevator. about like mirror wave technology that allows you to communicate with people like thought speak at long range. And so this is machinery that you can thought speak to, which is kind of another new type of thing to learn about. And then we get the Yerk Mothership, which is a creepy, gross looking jellyfish spider. And then an introduction to Z-Space. Yeah. Ooh, is that going to be a thing? Well, it, I mean, it is a thing, obviously, in the physics of the universe. Well, sure, but it could be just a, <laughs> we need to find this sonic piece screwdriver, of data, yeah. and then it will, you know, make us have an adventure, as opposed <laughs> to, and now we will learn more about the physics of Z-Space. I think it's going to be a thing. I'm excited. There was a moment where the Z-Space was, was it because they had a shield up or something like that? There was some reason that... Yeah, the York ships use Z-Space shielding, so you need the Z-Space uh, transponder to talk to that. Well, sure. Earth. Something like that. Yeah, I, I like right. that. It's very funny. I mean, again, it's they they're building this world almost casually. These aren't books that have a depth of world building because they don't have the space for it. So you mm-hmm. get these moments of world building like that where they've kind of thought about it and there's Z space, sure, but it's kind of thrown in as almost an aside. Yeah. Right. Well, they need it. They need it for this book. Right. So they introduce it, and then in future books. They'll have it to grow on if they want it. Right. That's what I was talking about with the efficiency. I actually, I really like it. It's clearly a challenge in the books. Like you do, we were talking last time about how they bring up these things about like, what about the dolphin mind? And they never resolve it. And they bring up, like Axe combines their DNA at the end of the last book and they never, they don't ask questions about that because it's not plot relevant. Like they really do keep it tightly to like, things that are relevant to the plot and sometimes that's a challenge like I feel like a lot of the ends of these books like they end really abruptly like Mm -hmm. the story has wrapped up and maybe there are lingering questions but they don't have the story space to answer them because they kind of completed their plot sort of the the genre that they're writing in there was one detail that was sort of like that Marco talks about how Cassie tried morphing from one animal to another because it finally comes up and I was like yes go Cassie (laughs) We were, we've been wanting them to do some experiments, just some basic, <laughs> you know, not risky experiments. And at least they've so tried. Useful at least they've tried that. one thing. I also wondered if they had been able to, if that would reset the time. Not that it matters. That would be right. kind of nice if they could do that, but it didn't reset the time. I mean, it wouldn't be nice for them, but like I feel like that would feel less like cheating, because yeah. the real challenge is having to right. morph back to human and maybe being in a dangerous place where mm-hmm. you'll be exposed. Right. The other morph technology thing that we learned. It took me a while to realize this. That Axe incorporates clothing into his human morph, Mm -hmm. which is not what the other Animorphs are doing, because there's kind of this, like, you can, you're always going to, like, the copy of the thing that's DNA you have, Mm -hmm. but somehow X isn't more able to do it. It sounded like they got him clothing, and maybe he put it on while he was in human morph, and then morphed back to Andalite, and then when he morphed to human again, he had the clothing. That was my interpretation, but, like, if you reconstruct bodies from DNA and they aren't injured anymore when you morph back, it's really amazing that the clothing thing can transfer. Right. Well, he, used the, he uses the word integrated. So hmm. that suggests to me he has some kind of ability to control it. But they don't ask about it. And yeah. it's not like, would Marco really want a vest on in his gorilla morph? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Definitely not. Another morph thing that I noticed in this book, in Marco's timeline, it seemed like it took three minutes for the morph to happen, which I think maybe off the podcast we had been wondering like how long it was. Minutes and not seconds. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so it seemed like they budgeted three minutes. And I also noticed that, at least the way Marco laid it out, the clock started from when they finished the morph, which is interesting. Oh, you can half morph and then it's a loophole. I don't know, because we were talking in book three about like what if they get frozen in like half morph state presumably at some point they would get stuck there well what if it you could imagine it's a gradient so it goes at a two-hour pace once you're fully morphed you so it maybe if you're partially morphed you have a slightly longer time window like it's not quite quite long enough so (laughs) as you maybe as you morph out you're buying yourself a little bit more time oh yeah so if you've started morphing out before the end of the two-hour window as with the wolves yeah i 
would like this to be much clearer. <laughs> right. I mean, it will never be clearer because you need that tension of knowing or not knowing whether it's going to be okay. Right. You need that time clock ticking down. But... Yeah. In some sense, you know there's going to be another book, so it will be okay, and, sort of. <laughs> but <laughs> Tobias, Tobias got stuck. Yeah. Right. Some someday it's going to be Tobias the bird, Marco the gorilla, and Rachel the elephant having adventures. Wow, that's a really inconvenient morph to get stuck in. <laughs> well, they've mentioned that here. There were some really great, just speaking of the, the timing thing, one thing that we've talked about in the past about Marco is that he is very into logistics. He's the logistics person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He knows how to make things happen. And this came up several times in this, where he's got the timeline of we're going to take this bus, we're going to go to this place. They really trust many the buses minutes. a lot. They do. They should not. <laughs> But also, he, he does it just several times, and he also has the ability to kind of try and break the tension and to hide mm-hmm. his emotions in so doing, and mm-hmm. it's successful to a greater or lesser degree, but it was great that, again, those, those parts of his personality were really emphasized yeah, here. Yeah, but it's so sad to me that the other Animorphs don't know how vulnerable he is. We, we saw Cassie see a little bit of it in the message, mm-hmm. but... Everyone just sort of says, oh, Marco's just a sarcastic guy. That's his personality. And multiple times in this book, he's like, I made a joke to relieve the tension because that's what I do, but I felt terrible, Mm -hmm. right? And you sort of get the impression that they don't see it. Maybe a little bit Jake can read him. Um, And we talked about how this is actually a great boy-boy vulnerability moment, Mm -hmm. which we've been missing so far in the books. Yeah, I wonder if we'll get more of that as we go through, because, like, Rachel is really the one right now who seems like she doesn't see Marco, and I think Tobias also hasn't really had a lot of interaction with Marco, but Rachel makes it explicit in this book that, like, oh, you can just make jokes and be okay with it, and I feel like maybe there's some reciprocal blindness going on, like, those two, because they sort of have an antagonistic relationship, aren't quite seeing each other very accurately, and I wonder if that will shift. And that scene was one of my favorites in this book because yeah. it was like the slice of life school scene after yeah. they've all had this really traumatic ant experience you know, the stakes are kind of incredibly low like they end up in Chapman's <laughs> office or whatever but it's it's mostly there just to kind of deal with the the trauma that they're all going through and it kind of reminds us I mean I always love the stuff where the extreme trauma alien stuff is juxtaposed with like oh, right they're still going to school like it kind of anchors it and it made me think about how I mean, there's no such thing as a universal reference point in any culture, but, like, going to school, like, going to middle school and high school and being this, like, sort of almost adult in this very regimented world where you have to abide by the rules, and the stakes seem low, but they're also, like, they're kind of the only stakes you have. The psychology of that is embedded in the vast majority of people in the United States and many other parts of the world, and it's such a powerful thing to contrast anything with, like the incredible trauma of turning into these ants and almost getting killed in this battle that they weren't prepared for and then having to go back to this world and like deal with the seeming triviality of it. Having right. a pop quiz. Yeah. Yeah. Or or not deal with it. Right. Like it's I thought it was a really interesting development in Rachel's character that one everyone s- says she's so tough right yeah. Cassie and Marco both introduce her as kind of like she's just this happy warrior type person or maybe yeah. angry warrior type but she's mostly yeah. she's gung-ho about it and then Marco's really worried one of us is going to snap one day and then we see Rachel lose it and it, it's not because she's morphed an aggressive animal she yeah. really overreacts and she's she gets into like a school fight but there's also a little bit of this, like, how can this, where does the rage come from out of this little skinny girl, right? Uh, and it's it's kind of scary. Yeah, it's yeah. maybe the first time we see anyone, any of them have such a disproportionate reaction in their real lives, I think. It's really like, And then, oh, like you said, it's going. a little bit of a misconnection. Marco kind of turns it into a funny situation, which allows Rachel to kind of de-escalate internally. And then they're both kind of like, hey, you know, you're cool. Oh, yeah, you're cool, too. <laughs> but they don't deal with the fact that they're both really hurting. It does seem like Marco might see it in Rachel. I don't know if he understands the significance of it. Or, like, he might just yeah. now see her more as someone with this crazy, like, rage, gung-ho right. fightingness. Is there anything about Rachel that made the ant thing worst for her? 
Is there a particular reason why she was the one who seemed to react the worst? I mean, she's the, as the warrior, I wonder if being in a battle for which not only was she unprepared, but which they almost lost, would have been particularly difficult. Because in in previous battles, she's been the elephant squishing the cars, right? And Mm. to be in a place where they were so small. And she didn't like being the shrew. And, And to have that battle almost be lost permanently. I mean, they could have been killed by ants, and what an ignominious way to die. It's interesting. I didn't interpret it as the ants were hardest for Rachel. I interpreted it as it was really hard for all of them, and this is how Rachel reacts. Like, none of the others would have this extreme rage reaction because it's not as much in their character. Yeah. I like that, yeah. I think that's... I I will say, this is a little... I mean, it's not really a spoiler. It's a thing from a later book. I remember at one point one character says to another, like, we all have morphs that we don't like to do like no one liked ants but like we don't do it again especially for marco and i was really confused about that kind of at the time and also reading this book like yeah it was in marco's point of view so we got like his horror of it but it didn't seem like it was worst for him i I don't know the the context of when that happens we should talk about it when it comes up later right Um, but i do wonder if he sort of takes the fall for the group because he complains about the exoskeleton thing and he's he's like a little more willing to be vulnerable and a self-deprecated yeah he's a complainer and so then none of them want to do it but it could also just be they're like well this is marco's thing oh that's (laughs) such a good point i love that idea Uh, but we'll see we can come back to it Hmm. i it's really interesting the thing about him coming back first i loved the way that works thematically in the book like the total horror show of like being ants is terrible just thinking about it totally losing yourself to a hive mind what an alienating experience that would be how axe reacts so strongly against it like something something about it is really fundamentally wrong to andalites as well as humans and it's like Mm -hmm. losing your individuality and i thought that that's so interesting given that marco spends so much of the book compartmentalizing his feelings and trying to be numb and like not react and not think about the things that he's going through he keeps kind of saying, well, I just have to make a joke about it. I just have to move on. I can't dwell on the fact that my dad's a mess. I just have to kind of keep going. And then he does then get to be this animal where he, he's totally erased for a moment. And he comes back screaming. There's a part of him huh. that can't let go that much. And you kind of see this seesaw back and forth where he's like, I'm, I can't really think about this. When he thinks they're all going to die, he's like, well, I'm, I'm resigned to it. I'm not going to dwell on it. But again, at the end, he has that moment of like, we can't give up while we're alive. We'll go back to ants again. We have to keep fighting. I really liked the way that that played out over the course of the book. I really liked the balance between cynicism and idealism. I think we mentioned it a little earlier, but I loved him going through this whole thought process of like, I can't put myself in danger. My dad already lost someone. And somewhere across the galaxy, their mm. parents wondering where their kids are. And their kids were coming to save us. And we owe them that debt. And this whole thing where he's like, ugh, I hate having a conscience. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> it was so identifiable. And so, like, you can really see he maybe has more on the other side. Like, he has more to lose. He has more reluctance. But he has just as much, like, conscience and mm-hmm. principle as the others. Which we saw in Cassie's book, right? If an Andalite yeah. needs me, I'm there. Right, he he mm-hmm. was he was willing to go all in on that right away. Mm-hmm. It's nice to see the growth for Marco, because we have only seen that kind of external smart yeah. aleckness and not what he's hiding. And I I liked seeing that, seeing how he is good at hiding his emotions, but he's also good at identifying the times in which breaking the tension is the is an important thing to do. Whether it's with Rachel in Chapman's office or you know when they're talking about ants, like he he has this great ability to be the funny man to ensure that they can all kind of come back together and and figure out the next steps, which was really good. And he also, like Ted was saying, provides like is willing to be the fall guy for like making complaints, mm-hmm. which is a really valuable role that I hadn't really been thinking about. Yeah, and he's good at pointing out when the plans are down. 
when they're starting to talk about stealing the Yerk spaceship, I have a note that just says, Marco and I agree that this is a stupid plan. (laughs) (laughs) The the lobster thing was maybe not the best plan. Like, couldn't they? Oh, because Axe had really limited morphs. I guess that's the reason they had to do it. whatever they had right there. So I was like, couldn't they turn into birds and find the roof or like... Oh, right. Yeah, again, they just weren't. They weren't prepared for it at all. There were so many, like, really dangerous things that happened in this book. Like, I had forgotten the lobster thing. I remembered the ants. But, like, first they turn into lobsters and almost get boiled alive. Like, literally, he is over the pot. Then they turn into ants and almost get killed. And then they get taken captive by the Yurks in space. Like, this is not that long a book. So much stuff happened. Yeah, again, though, I think the lobster scene, and even the (laughs) ants to some degree, felt less dangerous than some of the other experiences that they've had. Fighting with Visser 3 in the ocean and the scene with the wolves, I mean, all of those felt more dangerous. I think the ants felt very dangerous, but Mm -hmm. in terms of what they were trying to get from it, the stakes seem a little bit lower. And like the lobster thing was just... (laughs) The mission to send Axe back, like they kind of had to try it, right? Like you can't just assume he's going to stay, but it is, you're right, that it's not like the stakes aren't the same as... But that's good. You get more. You get more of Marco in that way because you're not so worried about the stakes. And it's a it's a little more about the fact that the anniversary of his mom's death is coming up, mm-hmm. and it's a little bit more of a personal journey where he's like, "Well, this will be my last mission. Maybe yeah. if the stakes had been higher, he would just, he would have backed out right away yeah. because." Or you know, maybe if the stakes had been higher, he wouldn't even have, to have had to go through that calculus because it would have been obvious that it needed to happen. Right. You mentioned the spaceship being captured in space. Can we talk about that scene a little bit? The Star Trek uniforms. The Star Trek uniforms <laughs> or the Star Wars lining up for the uh, display of the prisoners. The I, different colored uniforms. The Visser 3 Visser 1 dynamic is one of my favorite things. I, I really guess like that. Going going back to going back to you being a little disappointed by the twist or whatever. It's again another one of those things. I mean, we're going to see more of this dynamic, or it's more of the Yurk internal military, politics. yeah, internal politics dynamic, and it is generally delightful whenever it comes up. <laughs> so this is like a, a little taste. I did enjoy the politics of it, the gold uniforms and the red uniforms, and yeah. and they walk in and immediately they're like, oh, they don't get along. And How do you know their body language? Well, some of them are humans. But this is also it is another Deus Ex Machina resolution, like oh, the yeah. last book. But the sort of uh, internecine politics thing feels so much more real and relatable that it's almost like you can like laugh it off. Like, wow, they got so lucky, but this it's is... It's believable. It's believable yeah. in a way that the psychic whale wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you there. So I had a question about that, actually, which was the explanation that they give for being released from imprisonment is that Visser 1 is doing this to make Visser 3 look bad. Are we sure that that's the real reason? Did Marco's mom recognize him? Well, he's he was a gorilla. a gorilla. How would she have recognized him? Well, let's assume that she did. What would that kind of imply is going on? I think she didn't because it would have probably played out very differently. So, like, what? What? I so I had actually assumed that she did, mm-hmm. and I don't have any textual <laughs> evidence for that assumption. And so, what I thought was happening was Visser one the Yerk maybe has this motivation of making Visser 3 look bad. Mm-hmm. But Marco's mom, who perhaps has somehow recognized the humanity of her son in the gorilla's eyes or whatever, <laughs> is using this as a way to kind of fight back against the Yerk, like we like, saw Chapman. Maybe it serves Visser 1's political goals, but also this way she can make her human host more compliant, and that's easier for her too. Exactly. Yeah. Well, this is interesting. I think I know too much. But I don't know how she could have recognized him, though. Well, I, I don't know what kind of skills the Yerks bring, right? I mean, they, yeah. If they... But it's even I think the, we saw a little bit of this dynamic with Chapman, but I think we'll we'll probably learn more about this eventually. The Yerks seem to know what's going on with their controllers and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's if Marco's mom recognized him, Mister One probably knows that that happened. And I don't I don't want to really. Oh wait, Gray, were you saying say that why, but... Marco's mom recognized? Marco, but Visser 1 didn't know? Yes. That, that's how I could see this playing out, but I understand that may not be actually how this works right. in this universe. I think, but it's a good, it's a good take. It's and a good I take. liked it because I was also thinking about how 
why Marco's mom? If you were going to be the first, the first invading force, right? Why would you choose his mom as opposed to the president of the United States, the head of the UN? I mean, there, you know, I might yeah. have chosen a more influential individual, right? To take on that role, and so I was thinking, like, maybe there's something about his mother's strength or intelligence that mm. is of use to the Yerks. And in that case, maybe as that sort of intelligent and strong person, she also has the ability to kind of keep some of her thoughts separate right. from the Yerk, right. which Ooh. might be really interesting because then there might be this kind of internal battle in Visser 1 between the Yerk and its host. And then how does that play out with, as you were saying, the battles between the different Yerks? I had a whole. I think thing. we should wait and see how yeah, this goes. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. <laughs> the thing that I love the most about that scene is well, there's there's a lot, there's a lot. So we were saying about how the morphing is like all kind of horrible in this book, even the gorilla morph, which at the beginning is kind of this like it's a, a useful, powerful tool for him. At the end, he has that devastating line where he's like, if I had been any other animal, it could have helped me deal with my feelings. But the gorilla was too human. So he just had to sit with the fact that now he knows that his mom is alive, but that she's a controller and she may have been a controller most of his life. Yeah, It's so terrible. And the thing on top of that is that Marco goes through it alone with Jake and Jake's immediate reaction to control the situation is kind of something that we haven't necessarily seen from Jake before. It's it's like really cruel in a necessary way. He's like, I know what it's like to have a controller as a family member and we can't afford for you to go through what I went through. So I'm going to tell you, <laughs> she's not your mom anymore. It, and Marco, he like has to process all of that so, so quickly. Yeah, it and was, Jake has to do it. I actually learned the word expedient from these books. <laughs> <laughs> not in this one, I don't think. Yeah, and, and the relation between Jake and Marco was really interesting here because you do get that sense that Jake understands what Marco needs to hear in order for them to survive yeah. and to move on. And maybe it wasn't that easy for Jake to do that, but... He, he knew what he had to say, but also that Marco trusts Jake so entirely mm-hmm. that he will listen to him in that situation, yeah. but also he trusts him not to tell the others. He trusts him to keep this silent and to know that this is going to be something important for him, but he doesn't want it to be a thing. And I actually really liked that in part because of how Marco describes Jake at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Um, because he has that thing about how he always, he seems bigger than he actually is. He's a great sense of humor and is very smart, and I would trust him with my life any day, any time. Not that I would ever tell him that, Mm -hmm. which I thought was just, it was like a wonderful best friend line. Also uses the phrase, he has a confident chin, which I (laughs) don't know what that means. It's worth saying, reading that whole line, he has sensible brown hair and trustworthy brown eyes and one of those confident chins. I will know. why he's a natural He does not say... Other girls think he's cute. He just he just <laughs> lets it he lets it sit Leans there. Right into it. But also, is that an attractive description? Like, I guess it sort of is. It's more of the like leader description than like this guy's really hot description. Yeah. I don't know. He later denies that Axe is cute or I, says yeah, that I can't yeah. know about it because I'm a guy. But yeah, he doesn't say that I, about I Jake. And that that's been a recurring theme. Tobias has to kind of say, "Oh, girls think he's cute. Girls think mm-hmm. he's cute." But yeah, it was a great insight into their relationship. I think that that description. But then how he's like Jake don't tell anybody about this yeah. we'll just I loved how that interaction that private interaction with them like you were saying Ted like it's not just Jake being a supportive friend it's Jake doing what he needs to to control the situation but then it does have this sort of relationship strengthening moment of like don't tell anyone no one will ever hear it from me like mm-hmm. Jake mm-hmm. has his back on this mm-hmm. even if he can't really give him the kind of support that would actually make it okay because mm-hmm. what would that even be and there's a that interaction where he's saying you know keep it to yourself he says no one finds out no one can ever know okay marco he said my mother died two years ago tomorrow that's how it will be my friend and just that that's how it will be my friend was like such a lovely way for a teenager to say that mm-hmm. just yeah. okay that's how it's going to be but someday marco it, just, it was it was a very moving moment I enjoyed, just speaking of relationships, how Marco was as confused as we are about what is going on with Jake and Cassie. <laughs> He's like, I think maybe Cassie's Jake's right. girlfriend now, uh, but I don't really know. That's great. Mike likes her. He can sticks we... around until Jake is finished saying goodbye to Cassie. Uh, can we talk about the other Jake-Cassie moments? 
there. Yeah. It's the like wolf nuzzling the tiger Aww, at the end. Yeah. Adorable. And then the one that really got me is that after they are all coming out of the ant thing and they're mm-hmm. all like basically they all think that they're they're dead, yeah. right? And then I'm imagining Jake just lying there and even though he has just almost died himself, the first thing that he says is Cassie. Like, did she did she make it out? That's all that he wants to know. And Rachel's like, yeah, moment. I'm good too, by the way. Right, right. Which is funny, but it's like, yeah. it's such, it's so cute and tragic. And Cassie giving him the half hug when they're all exhausted from, I think it's mm-hmm. the lobsters. Marco's like, yeah, that was cute, but it didn't help my mood. Right. <laughs> it was really great, yeah, seeing their relationship from the outside. They clearly have, like, mm-hmm. they are supporting each other and making it easier for each other in a way that, like, maybe the other people in the group don't have or don't have to the same degree yet. Mm-hmm. Or Marco can't see it as much because he's like, can really see what's going on with Jake. And Tobias is a bird, so it's harder to see anything going on there. I did want, so when the wolf and the tiger were nuzzling each other in the ship, I, I kind of wanted Tobias to be like, I'm Rachel's elephant head, Aww. like creating yeah. her or something. Do you think Marco has any sense that there's a Rachel Tobias connection? I was looking for evidence Ooh, of it, and no, I think he, he doesn't, doesn't know yet. Know. I don't yeah. think he knows. Yeah. And his his antagonistic relationship with Rachel, you could see also being a source of like romantic tension at some yeah. point. But yeah. I'm hoping it doesn't go that way because I really like Rachel and Tobias. Yeah. I think they're definitely both role playing the like I hate you, but I deep down I like you kind of dynamic. Mm-hmm. I think they both lean into that pretty yeah. consciously. Yeah. One other quick thing that I wanted to bring up about the end and Marco's reaction is that his elucidation event is much more outwardly focused or, or sort of aggressive almost than the other ones. For everyone else, their moment is about protecting somebody. Mm. And his is someday I'm going to go out there into space and save my mother. Mm. And that's mm-hmm. a very different attitude than, you know, Rachel's going to protect her friend. Jake's going to protect Tom, Cassie's going to protect the Earth, and Marco's going to go and he's going to get those guys. And And I thought that was interesting. It doesn't necessarily raise the stakes overall, but it does broaden them, right? So we go to space for the first time in this book, and now all of their problems can't be solved in their hometown, right? right? (laughs) Which is... It's not like they're going to go to space every book from now on, but it does kind of mean that there's stakes out there somewhere. Mm -hmm. Right. Jake could save Tom without leaving his house, maybe. And if Marco's going to save his mom, he has to go to space. Mm -hmm. Right. One of the amazing things about taking them into space at this point in the books is they can have that we look down at the earth and it took our breath away Mm -hmm. moment, which I thought was really beautiful. It was so great to have that right after the end of the fourth book where Mm -hmm. they learn that the Mm -hmm. earth is going to be destroyed. And I remember reading somewhere, I don't know, where the pictures of earth from space in the 60s were something that really helped kickstart the conservation moment. Like this Mm -hmm. idea of this beautiful thing that exists in this scary void that we have to protect. And now they're getting that same you. Yeah, and I, I love the imagery of the little zoo of earth animals looking down too, right? Because <laughs> yeah. they're all feeling it as humans, but it's also this amazing the moment The animals of, are there with them. Yeah, sort of, there's yeah. an elephant and a gorilla and a tiger and a hawk all looking down. Uh, really fast, you asked me um, a couple books ago who was going to have the wolf yeah, as did. their ongoing favorite, and it's Cassie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that makes sense. I love the yeah. way that she brags about it. She's like, well, I'm quick. You know, I'll I'll be I'll still be going when you all are. <laughs> oh yeah, she exhausted. has she has the endurance. Right. Should we talk about race? Because this is another book that doesn't bring it up very much. Mm-hmm. Marco is the character who turns into a monkey, but he's Hispanic. Yeah, it's I not as feel much like it was leaning thing. into that yeah. particularly racist trope. I do wonder if they thought about it again. This is the thing yeah. that always comes up. Yeah. Uh, it sort of seems like it's just not the kind of thing yeah, that's on I their minds. But that's that. I mean, do you want to say more? Yeah, I was thinking. When we did the fourth episode, and also for this one, that the fact that race is mentioned as like an attribute of Cassie and Marco, and then doesn't come up in any other way, mm-hmm. it's specifically what that colorblindness is preparing us for. Like it allows, I think you said, Gray, last time it allows any reader to identify with Cassie and Marco, just without having to think about the racial component. But I think what it prepared us all for as like kids of the 90s is like to be able to identify with people of other races whose experiences are like exactly like those of white people, as long as race wasn't part of their experience of life. Or they didn't talk about it. Yes, yes. I think that was maybe how it played out in practice a mm-hmm. lot more often. 
Well, yeah. I mean, that's almost more the, and they didn't talk about it thing. That almost seems like a source of the blind spot. Yeah, I mean, and in general, I think there's part of that being white, one of the ways that that privilege manifests is not having to talk about it. Yeah. And therefore not wanting to hear about it. And if you hear about it, it's probably like, if that person is calling you racist, like it's an attack. How can you possibly be racist? You don't even think about race. So many eye rolls. So it's it's interesting. There is a little bit of class as well. I was just Mm going to bring that up. I thought it was interesting that they explained the story. Yeah, that for Marco in particular, you know, he's his dad is an engineer and he's or a scientist and he has a great job and they live next door to Jake and then they have right. a boat. Presumably Jake's family is super rich. Right. That's and, what I got out of yeah, that paragraph. That's what I got to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> interesting. Um, like they weren't but they is it, the way he says it is not like we lived next to Jake. It was like we lived like pretty close to Jake. Right. There was some little hedging that like they were still, you know, Jake maybe lived at the, the top of the hill and we were like a couple. Right. Oh wow! But I didn't really interpret it that way. Friends. I was like, "Oh, they were neighborhood friends." But you might be right. Yeah. Anyway, so and then yeah, and then yeah. he his dad becomes janitor, and they have to get their groceries from Seven Eleven, and they you know live in this yeah. small garden apartment, and it was really interesting that that again it wasn't something that they really talked about, but there were these indications that actually this is a bigger gap than maybe you might think, and I think Tobias fits into that kind of lower socioeconomic mm-hmm. status as well, just given his backstory. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't something that came up at all for him because he's burnt and he's not buying groceries. But that was really interesting, I thought. Mm. Yeah, it is more of a thing for Margot than the race thing is. And in some ways, it's nice that they included that. And in other ways, like, they do nod to, like, okay, like, cars and houses. Like, you know, that's not what matters. But Marco's dad having that job as a janitor, them not having a lot of money, is part of his dad's breakdown and, like, that he recovers from. It's not really part of their family's background. Like, they aren't caught in a cycle of poverty. Yeah, that's like, good. They, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And there are no characters. Maybe Tobias. We don't really know that much about his background. But, like, Marco is portrayed as this sort of displaced middle-class kid or, like, upper-middle-class mm-hmm. kid, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. as, like, a middle- or lower-class kid who's, like, part of this group. Awesome. Yeah, and it's interesting. I was thinking about how the him being good at logistics, how much of that comes from him being very intelligent and how much of it comes from... He's now the person who has to buy groceries in his family. Um, But that it's maybe a little complicated by the idea that he's only been doing it for the last 18 months. That's a large part of the kid's life. It's been, well, like, yeah, two years. It's coming up in two Two years. Two years means he started when he was 11. Right. Right. That's a tough age to be thrown into having to be a caretaker and doing family logistics. Like, how did they find this apartment? If his dad's doing this work kind of not regularly, like, that means their budget is very different than if he had a regular job in normal yeah. I mean, it was just, it was sort of interesting that that was part of, part of Marco's backstory. So what did you think of the opening scene? We've had one of these scenes in all of the books so far, at least since the first one, where there's kind of like a little caper where they're mm-hmm. messing around with people. And it develops into this really interesting conversation with the whole team before they go off mm-hmm. and do the plot of we have to get Axe home. What was, what was your take on it? Or do you think we're going to always have a scene like this going forward? I think we might. I mean, maybe not absolutely every book, but like they do need to introduce us to stuff. That's what I was going to say, that it helps because it means that for any book, if you don't pick them up in order it's an immediate invitation to recognizing that what's happening. But are they ever going to confront the issues that, that they bring up where they're sort of like, why are you morphing by yourself? Why are you getting oh, into trouble? Know. You're putting us at risk. I thought this conversation was so fascinating. It was the like mm-hmm. the moral dilemma of this book was, is it okay to kind of go off and be a hero on your own? Mm-hmm. And is then, it okay to not be a hero when you know that bad stuff is going on? Right. It's well, like Marco's central thing, really. Exactly. And Marco says, it didn't turn out well, so I shouldn't have done it. <sighs> and Cassie immediately says, I don't know if it was the right thing to do, but you had good intentions. Um, the, yeah, she she says the out. feeling behind it was good. I think it was heroic. I think that's so emblematic of Marco's worried about how is it going to turn out, whatever the most efficient way to get from point A to point B is. And Cassie's more about like, well, what's the right thing to do in the moment? The way that he first describes her, I loved so much. If I'm comedy, she's poetry. Mm, It was so sweet. And I like that he doesn't look down on her for it. He probably will tease her about it, like he teases everyone about it. 
Uh, Although, I mean, I don't know that he teases Cassie all that much. Cassie isn't a good teasing target. That's true. She's not, she's not a nice. banterer. Yeah, she'll say something like, I don't know, it was heroic, and then that like cuts his banter off. Interestingly, we didn't get, Marco wasn't that mean to Tobias in this book, even though that's mm. happened over the past couple of books. Mm-hmm. And they don't actually interact that much. All that he says is, I tease Tobias sometimes, what happened to him scares me. And then he yeah. never thinks about it again. <laughs> What a great summation of Marco's character, though. That implied causality. Yeah. Yeah. There's another great line where Jake says to him, you haven't said anything mean to me for this whole walk. What's wrong? Yeah. (laughs) It's like anything clever but mean. Actually, I wanted to ask you about that. From that moment when he decides he's going to quit until the end when he's, he's recommitted, he totally loses his sense of humor. And I was wondering why that is. Like, is it that he's feeling guilty or like... What about the his decision kind of changes that for him? I wonder if it's sort of he was feeling indecisive and defensive about that indecisiveness or like now that he's clear about what this is for him, like this is the last one he doesn't need or he doesn't need to worry about his role in the group. I don't know. There are a lot of possibilities. I think, no, I think you're onto something with that because the function of his like sense of humor is to keep them all going or like he's like building this like close-knit band of people, Mm -hmm. right? And if he's checked out from that, the humor is how he relates to them, but he's not hes not going to be in this fight anymore. So maybe he's just, he's retreating. He really feels like one of the more complete characters we've seen. Like there are just so many sides to him. We get such a really clear view of his family life in a way we didn't with Cassie. I feel like we've seen more of him than maybe anyone except Tobias. I think that's right. And it's its also more, more of his internal life mm-hmm. in a lot of ways that with Cassie, I think we talked about there's a little bit of her internal mm-hmm. thoughts, but not as many. And with Marco, you really get a sense of how much he's thinking about all of these things and what he needs to do and, and all of that. So I think there's there's a real sense that this is a great, well-rounded character. Um, mm-hmm. Should we talk about some of the 90s moments in this book? Oh, yeah. I really liked how they tried to calculate the number of miles to Axis Home Planet, but their calculators didn't go that high. Yeah, that was so <laughs> 90s. I loved it. Really great. I, I looked up, there are exoplanets that have been discovered since this book was published that are about 80 light years away. There are multiple yeah, candidates for the Andalite home world. So nice. I just want to say, these books are real. <laughs> that, that proves it. Well done. Great. Did I want to know if they renamed the mall stores again? Yes, I wanted to talk about that. The Cinnabon was the same. I would destroy the book, the new book, <laughs> if Cinnabon was replaced. Yeah, no, that would be it's the most important product placement in all of Animorphs. I really liked the line over at Starbucks, the coffee place. <laughs> In case we didn't know what it was. I mean, it's another kind of clue. In 96, a Starbucks would be on the West Coast, right? Oh. It was long enough ago. I don't know how far they'd spread. Yeah, I don't either. But I did love the the lack of the assumption that everyone would know what Starbucks Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. They do make a good sticky bun, I muttered to Jake. Also, uh, the 90s, it's it's $2.95 for a double latte. Oh, Um, yeah. Did they change the pricing? One thing that stood out, this isn't necessarily 90s, but it's not something I think a teen would say. After Axe Morphs, Jake says, okay, put on those additional clothes. <laughs> I remember once reading something like back in the 90s when I was reading this for the first time from Kay Applegate saying, like, people ask her, like, how do you so accurately replicate teen conversations? And she's like, I don't. I replicate, like, what you would think the conversation was if you were to think about it after the fact. <laughs> <laughs> That's That's perfect. good advice. I love that. The beginning of chapter five. Yeah. Okay, where is Radio Shack, Jake wondered. Yeah, I don't know, I said. Is it up on the second level, you know, down by Sears? Is that it? Or is that Circuit City? Or is that the computer place? Is what they've changed it's like, that. Is it in the cabs? computer place. Or, oh, is it the computer place? Circuit huh. City has since gone out of business, so that makes oh. sense. Computer place instead of Circuit City. Great. Do they still have over at Starbucks the coffee place? It just says over at Starbucks. <laughs> Take that out. And the double latte is three fifty-five. <laughs> <laughs> they raised it by sixty cents. <laughs> That's delightful. That's delightful. Wow. I liked Axe trying to drink from the top of the paper. That was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. He was so impressed by the technology. So he talks about his mom taking him to JCPenney in the end. And then he goes home to play Doom with his dad, which I think the 2011 version of that has got to be like Call of Duty or something. Wait, they talk about a specific video game? Yeah. Oh yeah, so why did I always kick your butt whenever we played Doom? So why did I always kick your butt whenever we played just about anything that required two hands and a screen? What? I let you in. How about if we just go home and play a game? It says play a game in this as well. 
But like, wow, they couldn't is, come up with some yeah. other video this, game? This moment is so sad. There's so many times when he thinks, both before and after he finds out his mom is alive, that he's like, I just wanted to communicate about my emotions with my father, but I did not. I did not yeah. say those things. And sure, it works out. You have video games to the rescue at the end for these, these two, mm. this father-son bro pair. But <laughs> It's toxic masculinity. They could get, if they could get over the toxic masculinity, yeah. they'd, they'd just be able to make some more progress, I think. It's a really sweet moment, though. The, it is. It is really of, sweet. We want to go back to the way that we have always bonded in the past. It was a nice capstone, this book, that he's getting that connection that he didn't have, really, right. with anybody. Right. And now he at least has a little bit of support. And I was thinking, this is the parent that we spend the most time with oh, of any true, of the other yeah. Animorphs. Hmm. And then I was thinking a little bit about this and how with, like, I was kind of complaining about, in Cassie's book, we don't get her relationship with her parents. And I realize if your relationship with your parents is generally good, there's no drama to be mined out of it. And yeah. these books are very efficient and they're all about that like angsty drama. So this is, they have the like deepest and worst and most tragic relationship. And so that's why it gets the, the screen time. Sure, all right? happy families are. We don't get Jake's <laughs> relationship with his parents because the drama is with his relationship with his brother. Right. right. And we get a little bit of Rachel's relationship with her family because there's not really any other drama in her life. Like, it's all about mm-hmm. Melissa, and so it's sort of comparing her family with Melissa's family and mm-hmm. how yeah. she has to keep secrets. Mm-hmm. Should we talk about the next one? Yeah, what is the next one? The Capture. The fir- Well, not the first book I read. The second book I read, but the first one I loved. Oh, good. Okay, um, I'm going to find the cover. Oh, no. (laughs) You're going to say that a few more times, I think. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I just, he really does not fit the way that he is described, in particular the way that he is described by Marco. This is not a confident chin. Yeah, this is not a confident chin. This still looks sullen, still looks too small to be on the football or basketball team, depending on which description we're going with. Okay, so he is morphing into a fly capture now he's one of them okay so jake is going to be captured by the yerks and they are going to try to take him over and he's going to have to pretend like he's taken over um but isn't and then they're going to turn into flies because they need to get into the yerk pool and that is his like little spying way to do it because it's tiny all right. I like it. That was very. That was a good yeah. thorough prediction. I don't have any follow up questions. <laughs> I will say the uh, the predator one didn't quite turn out. No, I was not correct about the predator one. The, the word yeah. predator I think is used twice. One about the York mothership and once about one's lobsters. About lobsters. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was wondering when we got to the lobsters. I was like, is this why they bothered calling it the predator? Because the gorilla is not a predator. So no. in my note for that page is the lobsters are the predators. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> and then later on it was, oh, okay, the York ship is the predator. Fine. These book titles make no sense. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Scholastic was just like, this is a cool sounding word. Sure. Yeah, I think the titles were not chosen by the authors. They yeah, were picked reasonable. by someone Of course, the else. authors also didn't pick Animorphs, which was a great word. So. Uh, yeah, so, you know. Okay, I'm so excited to read number six again. I'm it, also really excited. It's just the one that made me fall in love. It's always going to be special. I love it. The next, the next two. The next two, yeah. Both really great. I feel yeah. like the first seven are like the first, yeah. the first act. If you will. <laughs> Ooh. Well, after seven, we should read the Megamorphs book. Oh, seven yeah. And eight. I don't know if Gray even knows what the Megamorphs books are. What are the it's, it's the first time. It's like book. the special where the, like, the chapters. Wait, wait, wait. Before you say, can I guess? Yes. yes. Okay, because I really want the Megamorphs to be, they figure out a way for all of them to animorph together <laughs> and to become one giant animal. A robot made of five lions. <laughs> that's what I want. How would that even work? That's so crazy. <laughs> Don't ask I that really question, Ted, because obviously it does work because that's what's going to happen in Megamorphs. Yeah. I'm sorry, now tell me what you're going to say with the oh, chapter. Okay, well, I was going to say, it's like, I don't know if you ever read like the Babysitter's Club specials sure or whatever. Did. Yeah, where like it's totally from everyone's point of view. Yeah, so oh. they'll be like, oh, this is the Marco chapter and the Cassie chapter, and then it cycles through. Yeah. So. so between seven okay. and eight, you get yeah. one where each chapter is from a different point of view. I really oh. like the first Megamorphs book. Great. Well, there's okay. a lot to come on yeah. Animorphology. Podcast. Very exciting. By us. Exactly. <laughs> if you want to find us, we are at Animorphology.com and at Animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends.
and if you want to read along, you can find a link to the Animorphs ebooks on our website. It's always really noticeable when we're like laughing or something when we speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah.